Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning we would hear the voice, the words, the message of your Son. And I pray that what he says would sink deep into our hearts and that we would be transformed. Amen. All four Gospels record the fact that there are lots and lots of people who reject Jesus. People who are frustrated at him. People who refuse to believe in him. Of course, we know the twelve followed him. And if you pay attention, there's a larger crowd of disciples that follows him. There's also these moments where incredible crowds come because they're interested in his healing. They want to hear his teaching. They see him cast out demons. They want to be fed. It makes sense that people would be attracted to him because whenever he healed people, something new has happened. When he cast out demons, people were delivered. When he spoke, it was with authority. It makes sense that people would want to follow him. The thing that's interesting, though, is how many people reacted to these displays of healing and deliverance and power with frustration and anger, disbelief and rejection. The scribes and the Pharisees, they accuse him of blasphemy, of breaking the law. They call him a sinner, a drunkard, a glutton. The Herodians, this political group around a minor king, they're seeking to destroy him all the time. He's even accused of this, by the scribes and the Pharisees of working by the power of Satan. Now we might say, well, it makes sense that those groups would be opposed or reject him because they had everything to lose by his presence. They were threatened by him. And it's true. But we also see in places like John 6 that the common people, crowds of the common people, turned away from him. And they were put off just by what he was saying. We see even things like his hometown, this is Luke 4, rejecting him. And their point is simply, we knew him when he was a kid. How does a carpenter's son become a prophet? They rejected him because they had known him when he was little. Even the John the Baptist had his doubts. When he was in prison, he sent his messengers to Jesus to ask, are you really the one? Even John the Baptist wavered. We see in John 7, Jesus' brothers actually disbelieving in him actively. His family didn't always know what to do with him. And in Mark 4, a passage immediately, excuse me, Mark 3, a passage immediately before these parables that we read in Mark 4, we actually see Jesus' family looking for him. And the implication seems to be that they're coming to take him home because this whole thing has gone a little bit too far. My point is, is that the Gospels go to great pains to show us all of these people not knowing what to do with Jesus, some actively rejecting him, some disbelieving in him, some frustrated with him. The disciples struggle to understand why people were turned off by him. After all, he's healing people of sicknesses. He's feeding thousands. People with demons are delivered. Why would anybody walk away from that? And if we're honest, it actually is a strange question. If he is who we say he is, why would anybody walk away from this? 
So Jesus tells a series of parables. Matthew 13 records the fuller set. Mark 4 gives us a few of them. But he tells a series of parables to answer this question, why so many people are turned off by him. The parables explain the nature of the kingdom of God. The parables explain why people can't receive the message. He's helping his disciples see what's going on in the moment. The most famous of the parables, the parable of the soils, basically says that, look, some hearts just aren't ready to receive this. Some hearts are too hard. Some are blinded by their love of money. Some hearts just can't receive this. The two parables that we heard Eric read are parables that actually begin to help us understand why so many people are turned off. And they also begin to help us understand what the kingdom of, of God is like and what will happen even though people are turning away. The first, the parable of the seed. Someone sows seed on the ground, goes to sleep, and he grows. And he doesn't know how it grows. He can't think inside the plant, but he knows it will grow and a harvest will come. Jesus is basically assuring the disciples, look, the seed is being sown. Don't judge things on their immediate appearance right now. The seed is being sown and a harvest will come. The second one, the one that we're going to spend our time on today, the parable of the mustard seed, effectively says that the kingdom begins with the humblest, the most insignificant of things. But it will grow. And as it grows, it will become a place of rest and safety and security and life for all who come to it. It's a parable that lets the disciples see that even though people are rejecting this now because it is so humble and insignificant, and by the way, it was humble and insignificant in its beginnings. Imagine a group of carpenters and fishermen wandering around saying, the kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom of God is coming. It is really humble in its beginnings. But Jesus is saying, even though people reject it because it looks so insignificant like a mustard seed, don't worry. It will grow. And when it grows, it will become something beautiful, something that restores people, something that brings rest. The mustard seed was a plant that was proverbial amongst rabbis, and many of y'all have likely heard this. The seeds were tiny. The plant that Jesus was referring to, the seeds are something like one seven hundredth of a gram. They're tiny, totally insignificant. And yet when they grew, they would grew to not grow to nine or ten feet. They became something that towered over the lettuce, the tomatoes, the peppers, the other plants in the garden. And the birds would come in. This is a place where you can actually nest. The birds can sit on the branches. It's proverbial for this thing that's humble at its beginnings, but it becomes something great and glorious. It's worth spending a few moments on the image of the seed in the tree because Jesus is using images that come from the prophets. They're images that people would have understood, his disciples would have understood. The seed throughout his parables refers to something specific. It's the word of God proclaimed. That is what the seed is. The kingdom begins with Jesus speaking, him saying the kingdom is coming and it is here in your midst. In fact, if we think back, look at the Bible more broadly, we can say that the world began with God speaking. The seed is the voice of the Lord. This is what it refers to. 
We see, though, in John that Jesus himself is the word of God. And so we can actually begin to understand that when Jesus is talking about a seed, he's talking about the words that God proclaims to begin all things. But he's also referring to himself, the true proclamation of the word of God. Isaiah 55 is one of those prophetic passages where we see God declaring, my seed, my word, always bears the fruit that I want it to bear. Throughout the prophets, God refers to himself speaking as planting seeds. Jesus is using images. He's saying to his disciples, this looks humble, but the right seed is being planted. I myself am the seed. My message is the seed, and it will bear fruit. The tree is another frequent image in the Bible. It's actually kind of strange that Jesus calls a mustard plant a tree. It's not a tree properly. It's a big bush. Matthew records him explicitly saying, this tree, and in Mark he refers to the big branches, words that are only applicable for trees. It's not that he's confused about his botany. He understands the difference between bush and tree. He's making a theological point. Because a tree is a frequent image in the Old Testament. Trees stand for those great empires that are supposed to give shelter and protection to all the peoples of the world. Babylon is called a tree. Assyria is called a tree. Egypt is called a tree. Go look at Ezekiel 31. Go look at Daniel 4. In those images, these great kingdoms are called trees, and they're supposed to exist so that the birds, the other nations of the world, can rest securely in their protection. The problem is, most of the time in the Old Testament, when this image comes up, it's because the tree is not providing rest to the birds. It's because the tree has grown, pr grown proud. It's grown too proud in its glory. And God's actually saying, I'm going to cut you down. I'm going to cut you down and plant a new tree. These images perhaps reach their culmination in Ezekiel 17, where God actually says, on Mount Zion, I will plant a new tree, the kingdom of God tree. And in this great kingdom, all the birds of the earth, all those people groups and languages and nations, in this tree they all will find their rest. Jesus is using an image that would have been familiar to the people. Trees are the kingdoms of the world. And the great kingdoms are supposed to protect people, provide shelter for the birds. But the image of a tree is more than that. Because the image of a tree is also the source of life in the Bible. Think back to the Garden of Eden. It all begins with a tree that gives life. That same image is picked up at the very end of the Bible. In Revelation 22, we see the tree of life, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Trees in the Bible are sources of life. They're images of God giving life to people. Of course, the cross. The cross is the true tree of life, where the one who was life poured out his life so that all would live. Trees are images of life throughout the Bible. So Jesus is saying to his disciples in this rich and beautiful way, as they struggle with why, Lord, do so many people reject you? As they struggle with him, using all of this prophetic imagery, he says, don't be worried about these humble beginnings. Don't be worried. Because the right seed is being planted. The seed that is the word of God himself, 
the seed that is Jesus Christ himself, that proclamation is being planted. And as it grows, it will become a kingdom that shelters, that protects, that gives safety and rest, security and life to everyone who would enter. It's a beautiful parable. And amazingly, as we stand back 2,000 years later and look back, we can say that prophetic parable has come true. From the humblest of beginnings, a ragtag group of people saying, the kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom of God is coming. From the humblest of beginnings, we can look at a kingdom that has grown, a kingdom where everyone who enters finds rest. Everyone who enters finds life. The birds of the air, you and I, we have a home, a nest in this kingdom. It's beautiful. But I want to spend the last few minutes talking about a principle that undergirds this parable. The principle that undergirds it is the idea that God uses humble things to build his kingdom. God uses humble, insignificant things to build his kingdom. I want to spend a few moments dwelling on this principle because we are tempted at all times to adopt the perspective of the world. The world's perspective is effectively this. It's the powerful that count. It's the successful that count. It's the beautiful that count. It's the wealthy that count. That's the basic perspective of the world. They are the significance ones. They are the ones who get listened to. They are the ones who get interviewed on the talk shows. They are the ones who host the talk shows. It's the powerful, the successful, the beautiful, the wealthy. These are the ones who count. That's the perspective of the world. And you and I are perpetually tempted to think like that. We're perpetually tempted to think like that, to discount the seemingly insignificant. We're tempted to discount it just out in the world in our neighborhoods. We pay attention to the people that matter. We're tempted to discount it in our churches, to think that the humble, insignificant church doesn't count as much as the big, glorious church. We're tempted to think about it in our own lives, that our value comes from our places of success are places of power and beauty and wealth. We're tempted to think like the world's perspective in so many areas. The church oftentimes falls into this trap and thinks that it needs to be something big and successful in the world to be making movement in the kingdom of God. All of us feel this. Thankfully, not in all ways. I don't know where it hits you whether it's the sense that I have to have the right house to measure up, or whether it's something subtler of I just need to be influential in this group to count. But we're all tempted to evaluate things by how big the splash they make. We're tempted to evaluate them by the size of the bank account, by the car that they drive. We even spiritualize this. We're tempted to evaluate people by how big, how significant their spiritual gift is. And thus we say the preacher is more important than the janitor or the worship leader than the mom working in the nursery. Yet Jesus' message here, God's message throughout the Bible couldn't be clearer because he says to us, I work with the humble. 
I work with the insignificant. He says, I build my kingdom out of the most unlikely sources. In other words, I don't need you to be big. I don't need you to be successful. I don't need you to be noticed. His message couldn't be clear. And it's not like the Bible is unclear on this either, by the way. You read through, and one of the most common themes is God saying, I work with the humble. I work with the humble. I mean, Jesus pulling a kid onto his lap and saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to become like this. We try to escape these truths because they grate against the way the world thinks. Jesus looking at his disciples saying, you know, it's really hard for rich people to be saved. It's easier for camels to get through the eye of the needles than wealthy people to be saved. He looked at his disciples and he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who mourn. You don't him saying, blessed are those who have it all. Blessed are those who everyone listens to. He says, blessed are those who are ground down by the world. Paul says directly in 1 Corinthians that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the world's wise. He chose the weak to shame the strong. This message is explicit over and over. It's implicit, too, in the stories of Israel. God denies the Israelites successive horses and chariots. Why? So that you don't think that you did it by your own strength. He sends them into battles with ridiculous things like torches and pots, trumpets. The point is clear over and over. You don't need to be strong. Isaiah says it directly. God says to you that your salvation is in repentance and rest, not strength. He says quietness and trust, that's where you will find strength, not military prowess. He sends out a shepherd boy with a stick and a handful of rocks against the giant, the champion of the other nation. From Joseph to Deborah, from Sarah to Elizabeth, from Mary to Gideon, Peter to Amos, from Zacchaeus to Rahab, God is perpetually working with people that the world says too small too young, too old, too sinful, too weak, too undisciplined. He's perpetually choosing the small things of the world, the small things. As Paul learned, God's power gets perfected in our weakness. That's when his grace shines through. His power gets perfected in our humility and our weakness. And that's why Paul's able to say, it's okay then to be a humble and cracked vessel. It's okay to be nothing, to be empty, to be broken. We see this, of course, though, most vividly in the birth of Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God. He spoke the world into existence, the one that the angels right now are praising in glory for his worthiness kicking and squabbling in a feeding trough is a little baby. God delights in the humble. He delights in the small. This is what he builds his kingdom out of. It's not a criticism of the famous, the wealthy, the powerful Christians. It's not a criticism of the Christian politician or the Christian athlete, the actor or the actress who has it all, whose bank account is full and looks are perfect, it's not a criticism of that. It's simply God's statement to you 
that he doesn't need that. He doesn't need you to become that. He doesn't need this church to become that. The humble grandmother, faithful to the word of God, praying her prayers in quietness, is likely doing more to shake the heavens and bring in the kingdom of God than the powerful politician who claims the name Christian. God doesn't need the success that the world values. He works through humble, ser humble servants. He plants mustard seeds, one seven hundredth of a gram, and yet he takes those and he turns them into towering trees that provide shelter, rest, life, beauty for those around. We need to hear this because we are tempted to think like the world, and when we do, we miss the glory that he would actually do in us, and we exchange that for one that means nothing in the kingdom of God. There's deep assurance in this for us, though. There's assurance for this church. God doesn't need us to be flashy. God doesn't need us to be powerful. God doesn't need us to be trendy and massive. He builds his kingdom out of the humblest of sources. And he is faithful to build his kingdom here amongst us. This is good because last time I checked, this is not a collection of the who's who in the world. God works in humble servant. But it's also assuring for us personally. God doesn't need you to have the right bank account. God doesn't need you to get the right status in your job. He doesn't need you to have the right home, the right car, the right title. He can build his kingdom in the humblest, the lowliest of children. In fact, he says over and over, those are the ones I choose. And as long as we're seeking after that other, we may find that we're running away from him working in us. There's assurance for us in this. He doesn't even need you to get the spiritual life perfect. This is the part that hit me like a ton of bricks this week. This is where I'm tempted. The deep belief that I need to be a spiritual Olympian to count to God. The deep belief that he's only going to work through me if I get all the disciplines and habits perfect. If my spiritual muscles are second to none. The deep belief that I have to earn my place before him by being strong. It hit me like a ton of bricks. God's saying, do you not believe that I work with humble, that I work with lowly people? Do you not believe that I work with people who've made mistakes, who've fallen down, who don't have enough strength to accomplish the task? Even in spiritual strength, God says, I don't need you to figure it all out. I don't need you to be the mighty. I work with the lowly. I work with the humble. That one hit me hard this week. And again, I heard the voice of God saying, it's in repentance and rest that you will find strength. It's in quietness and trust that you will find salvation. In other words, the only thing that actually matters, the only thing that matters, not how big the bank account, not how good the looks, not the status, the only thing that matters is do you cling to Jesus Christ? Do you cling to him? Do you rest in him? Do you trust in him? It's all that matters. Beautifully, all these parables that Jesus tells revolve around this. They revolve around it sort of obliquely from the side, 
Because in all these parables Jesus is telling, he keeps talking about seeds being planted. Remember, the seed is the word of God. His point is simple. When the word of God gets planted deep in a soul, God works with that. That's what matters. When the word of God gets planted deep in you, when it's allowed to grow, when it's not choked out by the love of money, when it's not choked out by fickleness, when the seed that Jesus plants grows deep in your heart, God works with that. So the call to us is actually pretty simple. You don't need to be successful on the world's terms. You simply need to let the word of God sink deep in you. As a church, if the word of God sinks deep in us and flourishes in us, we have no understanding of how much God might do through us. And personally, if the word of God were to sink deep in your heart, you have no conception of the glory that God might work through you. So the call is simple. Meditate on the word. Memorize it. Dwell on it. Listen to it. Obey it. Come back to it again and again. And through the word of God, cling to the one who is our strength. Cling to the one who is our success. Cling to the one who is our glory. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen.